You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Brett Cromkamp, who is running Flask in production to power a service that allows you to organize unstructured information, sort of like a personal knowledge database. Brett. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Nick. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I think we mentioned it before the show, developers with their side projects, that they love talking about uh, their side projects. So this, this is a great opportunity and love talking about these kind of things. So thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Okay, so my name is uh, Brett Krumkamp. I'm Dutch. I've been living for the last seven years in Norway. Uh, before that, I lived for, for 15 years in, in Spain. Uh, that's where my wife and children are from, basically. But currently living in Norway, my, my current job is CTO for a local software company here in Norway. We're part of a group. Uh, we build educational software. The company's called, I hope I'm allowed to say this, the company's called Serpus. Uh, educational software, gamification-based approach to, to learning. We also build our own educational platform for interactive web-based uh, educational resources, which we use then again in our own applications or we make available to third-party applications. But uh, contextualize this project that we're going to be talking about. I mean, that really is a, a personal project. Uh, I don't do too much development, actual development in my day-to-day -day job anymore. But uh, software and programming in general has been a passion since, well, since I was a kid. I mean, I grew up with uh, the whole home computer scene in, in Europe with uh, Commodore 64s and Ataris and MSX and uh, Sinclair's, uh, all of these kind of things. So since I was a kid from about 10, 11 years old, I've always been uh, programming. So although I don't really in my job program anymore, it's not something that I can give up. And it, and it, keeps, you, it keeps you sharp, for lack of a better phrase. So contextualize uh, the, the, the application that we're going to be talking about today. It, it really is something that I've developed. I'm, I'm really scratching this proverbial itch of mine. I, I've used uh topic map based because contextualize uh, is based on the topic maps paradigm I'll, I'll probably go into that in uh, into more detail uh, later on in this conversation but it really is a, a an application that allows you to structure what is basically quite unstructured uh your your not your own personal knowledge so this application helps you with exactly that it's it's a graph. It basically uses a large graph behind the scenes. You divide or split your, your knowledge as much as you can into topics. Uh, and those topics are then connected in what is basically a semantically meaningful way you connect your topics. And then to your topics, you can attach all kinds of informational resources. So so a topic map is, is basically a, a quite sophisticated, but still relatively straightforward way to, to take something like knowledge and, and, and really structure it and connect all kinds of information to the different topics that make up, your, make up your knowledge, or at least a specific part of your knowledge. You can use topic maps for a project, you can use them for a hobby, you can use them for, for work, for your personal life. It, it, it doesn't really matter, the flexibility is there. Right, so it sounds like you can use that for 
like planning out a course or learning how to program a specific language, like any topic, basically, right? Any topic. I, I mean, and anything can be a topic. So you're a topic. I'm a topic. My project's a topic. My application is a topic. Uh, and then obviously these things can be broken down into, to, I won't say subtopics, but obviously when you're looking at a topic, there, there are related topics there. And, and, and it's, it's kind of like a, a data model, but we've all seen them where you have these mind maps, uh, these concept maps. And, uh, and that is what this is to a degree, but it's semantic. So when you create a topic, a topic is of a given type. Uh, resources that you attach to a topic, they are of a given type. And you can create uh, very rich relationships between your topics. So, for example, the, the, the proverbial relationship, uh, for example, a mother and her son. So this is a relationship, obviously, but it's one that can be expressed quite, uh, quite precisely. So we could say that the relationship between a mother and her son, the type of relationship is one of family as an example. And in the relationship, sorry, in that relationship, each topic, both the mother and the son as another topic, they, they play a role. So in that relationship, relative to my mother in that relationship, I play the role of son and obviously vice versa, my mother plays the role of mother. That role, mother, that role, son, and that type family, they are all topics. So you get this very rich self-referential, uh, yes, graph. Uh, and, and you can just carry on creating your topics and connecting them in, in this kind of way. And eventually you end up with a, uh, a, a knowledge graph, a, a knowledge map that is just very easy one to build, very easy to traverse, very quite easy to, to maintain. Uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that's it. Yes. Okay. And if you were to like visualize what that would look like, I guess a graph database would be like a circle connected by like circles connected by lines, basically. C correct. So uh, Flask, and, and this is again something that we will probably go into. So so this application is a combination of, of two things. So I call it uh, simplistically, I call it the back end and the front end. The front end for me is the Flask application. The back end is what I call the Topic Maps engine. The Topic Maps engine is basically a, a graph database. And yes, uh, circles and lines, it's exactly that. Every topic you, you could call a vertex or a node, and then you're basically connecting those, those nodes with, with edges or relationships or in Topic Map terminology association. So it's circles and lines between those circles. Yes, that's, that's correct, yes. Yeah, I've worked a little bit with a couple of graph databases. It's kind of an interesting model. It's like you have these two circles connected by a line, but then you can actually have data on that line, basically. That's 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 absolutely correct. So um, in in Topic DB, so the the Topic Maps engine that that I've implemented and that is the backend for for contextualize. There's a couple of things uh, with regards to those lines between the circles, so the associations, the relationships between topics. One, on, in, on all of the entities, uh, all of the entities that are part of the topic maps uh, paradigm. So that's a couple. That's topics, that's associations, and occurrences. Occurrences is a fancy word to say the connection between a topic and an information resource. 
But on all of these, you can attach metadata. So you, you can describe them with whatever you want. So if you want to, for example, it's, in, it's an interesting case study. I've done it in the past where I'm attaching to the associations, I'm attaching a weight. And then what I can do is between two topics in a knowledge map, in a, in a, in a domain, I can calculate, obviously, using that weight that has been set as a property or as a metadata on the association, I can calculate then the shortest path. So I could say, okay, from this point in your topic map or in your knowledge, to get to that point, what topics are going to be traversed? And, and you can use, for example, like I said, properties on the association. Another thing is that associations in themselves can be considered to be topics. So, for example, you, you could imagine that if you are ma uh, modeling uh, a company and their relationship to another company, so there's a contractual agreement between them. So that obviously one company is a topic, another company is a topic, so topic A, topic B, and you establish then this relationship between those two uh, companies. And you do that obviously with an association, but that contractual agreement could be sufficiently important enough that you say, okay, I want to go beyond it just being a relationship between these two topics. Uh, I want it in itself to be a topic so that I can attach also metadata or I can attach resources to that uh, a relationship, to that contractual agreement between these two companies. For example, a PDF with the actual contract could be attached now as as the uh, association between these companies is also a topic, you just attach whatever resources, information, resources you want to that association. It behaves as if it's a topic as well. So what you get, sorry, sorry Nick, so what, what you get from this is just a very flexible, rich, self-referential uh, knowledge uh, uh, mapping. Uh, and, and it can be anything. Uh, it really can be anything, yes. Yeah, no, it sounds like the perfect data store to model such a problem. Yeah, it is. It is. Because, I mean, knowledge is, uh, I, I struggle to see how else we could easily map uh, or model something like, like knowledge. I, I think in many respects, knowledge is kind of a graph. So you just need to, yeah, I, I think a topic map, uh, the topic map paradigm is, is ideally suited for, for this kind of problem. Yes. Also, topic maps, they, they are a, a meta model. So what do I mean by that? I mean, everything it, when when you at work and you're drawing on the blackboard and you're trying to or on a whiteboard and you're trying to architect something. You, OK, guys, let's sit down. Let's really think about this. How are we going to architect this? How are we going to put this system together? How are we going to build this application and the platform? You very often end up with what we've just been discussing, circles and lines. You've got this component, you've got this component, this one is at this layer, this one is in this layer, and, you, and you're drawing lines between them to establish, well, how they interact with one another, the relationship between them. Topic maps, they are perfect to model that kind of stuff because every topic is of a given type. That type in itself is again a topic. The relationships have a type. Uh, the 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 roles are of a, a given type. So you can just very easily uh, create a, a model and use a topic map to do that modeling. So it's meta modeling. Uh, topic maps do that as well. Topic maps were 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 popular about 10, 15 years ago. They they are actually an ISO standard. But they they fell out of um, out of favor. Um, they were superseded, or if not superseded, that might not be the right word. But 
for 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 some reason they seemingly just did not uh, break through they they couldn't jump that that chasm they couldn't come across to to mainstream popular popular use i, I never understood that on the one hand I, I i find that quite sad because again they they have so much potential but on the other hand it's like well it doesn't matter because i'm aware of them i can use them they kind of like my secret weapon even though other people are not using them they are a fantastic data model to model other things and to model things like like knowledge so yeah that's where we are with topic maps right so going back to what you said before about scratching your own itch, then I, I imagine you built this for you specifically. Is that how that started? Uh, that, that's correct. Uh, I've I built uh, I've been using topic maps from around about two thousand and six, uh, at least professionally. Two thousand and five, two thousand and six. I started. Uh, we started with topic maps, and we used topic maps to to manage. Uh, for the company I was working for at the time, uh, we had lots of products, lots of different markets, lots of different niches, and, and we used a topic map based approach. Uh, and, and we had a CMS built on top of our, our topic map engine. Uh, but and and because I became I, I fell in love with topic maps, I, I also started applying them and using them and building them. Uh, so one thing, yes, we were building them at, uh, at work. Uh, I also started building them in, in my uh, own private uh, for my own private use. I've probably built about five or six, maybe even more uh, topic map engines. The, the current topic map engine, TopicDB, is probably something that I've been specifically developing since 2017, 2016, 2017. Uh, and and it's, uh, it, it's quite a refined topic map engine, again, based on uh, years and years of experience with topic maps. And yes, c coming back to your question, uh, I, I use Contextualize uh, because I, I'm so accustomed to thinking in topic maps, uh, I, I use topic maps for for all my own projects. Uh, I've used them at work to manage my own projects or the projects at work. But in my for my own personal projects, I, I use topic maps. I use so this is very meta. I use contextualize also to manage the contextualized project. So features, um, issues, all of these kind of things. Although it's not rarely a, a project management tool. So uh, I'm not trying to sell that one. I'm not saying uh, topic maps and contextualizers about project management, but at a conceptual level, when you're thinking conceptually about something like in this case, con uh, contextualize the application, uh, I, I, I've got that in a topic map where I'm trying to put the features together, uh, the kind of people it would be appealing to, use cases, that's all managed in, in a topic map inside of Contextualize, yes. So I, I use it. I use it definitely to scratch my own itch. I'm hoping, and that's why I made both TopicDB, the Topic Maps engine, and Contextualize, uh, why I've made them available as uh, open source projects. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that somebody else will also get value from them. Uh, because again, I so believe in topic maps. Interesting. So you actually created that topic DB package, I guess? Yes, I, I did. Yes. So if you if you go to the contextualized page in, in GitHub, uh, there's this or to my profile in GitHub, you can go to topic DB. And that's the actual topic maps engine that uh, so like I said, this this application contextualize it, it's in broad terms, it's two things, the back end, which for me is the topic maps engine, which is topic DB, and then the front end or the actual application that is talking to that back end. 
uh, and that is contextualized, and that is the Flask application. Okay, so yes, this application is powered by Flask, which is uh, a web framework for Python. So what, mid what motivated you to use Flask in the end? Okay, so um, I've been using Python. I've never used Python professionally, but I have been using Python. I, I mean, I can, I can remember Python from when it was 1.6. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly when that was, but it was a long time ago. I started to use Python round about when version 2.3 came out. I think this is around about 2003, I'm not sure. So Python has always been a language that I've been, uh, I've been dipping in and out of. Uh, I, I've been using Python because even 20 years ago, 15 years ago, Python was an extraordinary language, even at that time, or maybe even more at that time. Uh, so uh, Python for me, it was a no brainer when I started to think about, okay, guys, I really want to build uh, this, this application uh, for, for my own personal use. It was no, it was a no brainer that it was going to be Python because I really wanted to focus on the application. I really didn't want to get, uh, get lost in the details. Uh, so, so, and that's exactly what Python is good at. I mean, with Python, it's, it's just, well, we know the advantages of Python. We, we know the characteristics of Python. Python is an, a very clean, easy language to develop. And it's a language that just gets out of your way. So Python, using Python, that, that was a given. I, I decided that very early. And then it was, okay, but what, what web framework do I start using? Um, I had some experience, uh, again, in previous uh, personal projects, I had some experience with a framework called Pyramid. And, and I liked that framework. It, it was a very nice framework. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, that Pyramid is what Reddit used, but I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I think I, I can't remember, but it, it is a very nice framework. But my concern with Pyramid was, yeah, but I'm not quite sure how active this project really is anymore. I'm not quite sure how many people are, are using it. Um, so, so then you quite quickly start looking at other frameworks. And th there are two frameworks in the Python world. I mean, it's, it's Django and it's Flask. So Django was something that I obviously considered, uh, and, and Django, another example of a fantastic framework. I mean, if, if the kind of application that you're building is suitable for Django, I mean, go for Django. Django is fantastic. But in my case, I don't think it was suitable. I don't think Django was applicable specifically because I'm not using, or with Django, I got this feeling, I, I might not be right, but I got this feeling that with Django, you really get the advantages of Django if you are using its ORM. If you're not using its ORM, because when you when you define your, 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 your models using the Django uh, uh, ORM, it can generate uh, admin backends for you and all of these kind of things. And there's just a whole lot that you get if you are using the, the Django ORM. But I'm not using an ORM. I've got a topic maps engine. So I need to have a framework that I can easily integrate with, that I can easily set up to talk to a, a, a completely different backend, uh, data model, backend, uh, data store, whatever we want to call it. And, and Flask 
has that flexibility. I mean, with Flask, it's again, just reading through the, the, the standard, uh, the, the doc documentation that comes with Flask, it was like, I think it took me half an hour to figure out, okay, this is how I would need to connect this Flask application to my, my backend uh, topic maps engine. It, it was just that, that easy to, to do. So once I got that in place, it was obviously one of the first things that I got in place. Okay, Flask backend talk, uh, sorry, Flask frontend talking to this topic map engine backend. Once that, uh, once that, yeah, once I got that into place, it everything else with Flask, it was it was basically pretty smooth sailing. So so Flask for me just it just ticked off all of the right boxes for me. It it just worked. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like you just needed a way to kind of you know, attach some logic to some URL endpoints, hook up some templates, maybe some static files and call it a day. Correct, because uh, the topic map engine, uh, there, there is a class. Uh, so there's a topic store, as I call it. And this topic store provides a, a very rich Python API. Uh, so, so ex again, exactly. Once you've set it up in in Flask to be to be able to get access to this topic store, this instantiated topic store object. Now you've got all of those uh, those methods that, that the API that the topic store provides you. It 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 was all very straightforward with Flask. It was my first application, probably my first real application that I built with Flask. But up until now, it's been uh, smooth sailing. Smooth sailing. Yes. Yeah. So I don't think we covered this yet, but uh, how long has this thing been up and running in production for? Oh, not that long. Um, I think uh, today is the 26th of March. I'm, I'm not quite sure when I actually put it into production, but it, it's probably between a month or a month and a half ago. So I tried to figure this one out uh, and looking at my uh, Google Analytics st statistics. And I have Google Analytics statistics on the site from 24th of, of February. But it took me, I think, about two weeks before I remembered to actually plug in Google Analytics into the application. So I think the application has been in production uh, for about uh, one and a half months now. Yeah. Okay. I'm also glad to hear that I'm not the only one who sometimes forgets to do things like that. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm again, because I am doing this uh, for my own purposes, I, I do want to see how people are interacting with it, how many and whatnot, but it, it's, it's not a priority. Uh, and I'm not, for example, with Google Analytics, I, I, I don't track what people are doing behind the login. So I can only see, so on purpose, when somebody has logged in, I check if they are authenticated. If they are authenticated, I'm not injecting the Google Analytics tracking code. I, I really, I, I feel quite strong about that because once you start creating topics and all whatnot, the, the topic name would appear in the URL. So if I'm tracking that, then I could potentially be seeing what people are creating inside the application. And, and I don't think I should be doing that. <laughs> so uh, the, the, I've only got Google Analytics and what I call the public facing topic map. So with, with Contextualize, you can, you can keep a topic map private. Uh, it's behind a login. Nobody can access it other than you, or you can publish it. Currently, as the admin user inside of the contextualize, I'm the only person who can public, uh, sorry, who can publish topic maps. And, and that's because I don't want to be make other people, I don't want other people to publish topic maps until I've got some other features in place. Specifically, if other people can publish topic maps, then I need to ensure that I have a mechanism for, 
for dealing with uh, inappropriate content. So I need to get that in place first before I make it possible for users other than me to be able to publish topic maps. I only track uh, with Google Analytics published topic maps. So uh, yeah. Right, yeah, that makes sense. So you're kind of just using analytics for, well, how many people are actually going to my site and maybe how many of them register as a user? Yes, uh, how many are actually browsing, if they are browsing a, a public topic map, uh, what, what, uh, which topics are they on, which page are they on, but it's a public topic map, it's one of my topic maps. Uh, so yes, it's trying to get that understanding because again, if somebody, I would like to know if the, if the application is going to be uh, regularly used, if there's going to be some traffic against it, that would probably make me have to, to think about certain things from a, an architectural implementation point of view. Uh, when I'm doing maintenance on the site, uh, I would ideally like to know when is there not a lot of traffic so that if I have to take the site down, I can do it without disrupting people actually using it. So it's for that kind of stuff. Right, yeah, and that's all definitely completely valid reasons. You know, it's not because you want to spy on people, like you need this information. Yeah, yeah, yeah not at all, yeah. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, this is like a personal knowledge database. Can you actually, can you upload like media files, like images and things like that or no? Correct. So you, you log into the application. The first thing that you need to do is create a topic map. So you, you, you create a topic map, you give it a name, you give it a description, you, you, you also can upload an image for it. Uh, and, and then, so you created your topic map. Then you say, okay, I want to now go into that topic map. Uh, and the first thing you, that will happen is you are presented with what is called the home topic. Uh, so once when you create a topic map, behind the scenes, Contextualize creates a couple of um, default topics for you. One of them is the home topic so that wherever you are in the application, you can just click on a button and you will be taken back to the, the starting point in your topic map. Uh, so you, you land on this home topic and then you can do one of, uh, well, multiple things. You can either say, okay, I'm going to create another topic or I'm going to attach resources. I'm going to create an occurrence. Of course, this happens behind the scenes. It's completely transparent to the user. They are not aware that this is actually using a topic map occurrence uh, concept. So you, you say, okay, I want to upload an image. Well, you, you upload an image and now that image, that occurrence, that information resource has been connected to, to the topic, the current topic you're in. So there's this concept of current topic. You're always within the context of a topic. Uh, so you upload your images, you upload, uh, you can connect videos to it. You can, it, even so much so, one of my other projects is, uh, I use, a, I do a lot of 3D modeling and animation. So on the web, there is now a format called a GLTF that allows you basically to, to turn your Blender or your Maya models, you, you can export them to GLTF. And these GLTF uh, models, resources, scenes, I think they are called, uh, are, are basically a, a runtime format specifically for the web. So you can even connect uh, 3D models and scenes to a topic. You can connect uh, YouTube, Vimeo, all of these kind of things you can connect to a topic, uh, upload files, PDFs, anything you can think of basically you can upload as a, as, as a resource, as an information resource and connect it to a topic. Uh, and then obviously you could also then create other topics, your own topics, and then start connecting them up, establishing those associations or those relationships between topics. So yes, yes, you can do that, yes. Okay, so when it comes to uploading those files, which library do you use? If any, uh, 
I don't I don't use any library. I mean, again, uh, I, I can I can recommend or this is my approach. I really just went through all of the Flask, the official Flask documentation, how to do these things. And, and I'm following basically what they've explained. So if I remember correctly, there, there was a page on uploading files uh, with Flask. I've done it like that. I, I've literally done it like that. So. Uh, in many respects, when I was when I was looking at your questions, Nick, I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, I've got such a simple application, you know, such a basic application. I'm not using anything like uh, some kind of object store or some kind of blob store or anything like that. It's just the old fashioned way of receiving a file and writing it out to a uh, to a file system and then being able to retrieve it at some point. So I'm not doing anything fancy with uploading files. I'm just using what I believe to be the standard way that Flask is explaining in its documentation. This is how you upload a file, okay? That's how I upload a file, yeah. Yeah, I remember that documentation page. It's like not even that long too, right? Wasn't it just maybe like 20, 30 lines of code? Like it wasn't too crazy. Yes, it, it wasn't too crazy. It, it was rather trivial. You'd probably spend more on the front end and getting the form in place and, and all of that kind of stuff than on the actual back end. It, uh, it, it wasn't. Obviously, they, I, I do have some logic. I mean, I, I'm not just uploading the file anywhere on the file system. So when a file is connected to a topic, I need to be creating the appropriate directory. So the directory maps to the topic. Uh, and then in that, I have two directories, one for files and one for images. So then the file gets obviously uploaded to the appropriate directory for that topic. So there is some kind of organization of the files in the file system that map basically to the topics. Now, speaking of front end, how do you have this application set up? Is it Jinja 2 just serving server render templates or is it like an API based app with a JavaScript front end? Okay, so again, I mean, uh, a very, very traditional web app. Uh, at, at my work, we, we are, we've really bought into to, uh, these sophisticated JavaScript React based front ends, but that's not what contextualize is. Contextualize is really the, 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 the traditional uh, request server, server rendered HTML. Um, there is obviously some uh, some front endish, more dynamic stuff. There's at least five or six. So I've set up a separate blueprint, uh, an API blueprint that the front end can use for for the more dynamic uh, client side stuff. So so for example, when you when you create a topic, and you provide this nice human friendly title for your topic that topic name actually gets converted into a slug. So a slug is something that is highly suitable to be used in a URL. And it, it's very close to the human friendly name, but it's suitable for a URL. So that conversion of your topic name, a nice long or very friendly, human friendly name with all kinds of weird and wonderful characters in it, it gets converted to the slug that is then being, that is then suitable to use on, on a URL. That, that conversion, it happens automatically. I talk to a backend endpoint to do that conversion. I use a library, I think, called Python Slugify uh, to, to do that conversion. 
also in in the application in in lots of places you have to provide what is a, a topic identifier specifically when you are for example connecting two topics together with an association so you have a source topic and you have a destination topic so you and you do that by by providing the identifiers for those topics so you say between topic a uh, if that was its identifier and topic b uh, if that was its identifier, there is this relationship. But of course, I'm not expecting people to remember the identifiers of their topics. So everywhere where a topic identifier is required in all of the different forms where topic identifier is required, uh, I've got an endpoint that allows you to just start typing in the name of the topic and it starts auto-completing on that. And then out of that, you get the, the topic identifier returned to you. And then you just choose what is the appropriate uh, topic. And now the identifier is, uh, yes, is, is what is uh, set into the association. Uh, there's also a couple of sorry there's also a couple of other endpoints i'm doing quite a lot of visualization so the, the real value in a topic map or or at least part of its value is is being able to navigate it so so if you think back again uh, to these concept maps or the, these mind maps where you, you rarely see these uh, these circles in the, in the center and these lines to, to other circles, i.e. other topics, and, and you can just have this nice graph-like network, graph-like visualization to, 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 to see uh, the map. Well, I, Contextualize does that as well. So at any point, you you can click on uh, on a on a link uh, where the associations are displayed in Contextualize, and it will just bring up this this map uh, showing you your current topic is placed in the middle, and it then shows you all of the related topics and all of their related topics uh, up to five levels uh, away. It will show you all of the related topics, so you can see the topic name. Uh, of these topics, you can see the association type, you can see the topic type, you can see all of this in the graph, and you can also use this network visualization to, to navigate in your map. So uh, you could just click on any one of those uh, topics in that graph and the application would just navigate to that topic. So I'm obviously using a, an API endpoint to, to populate, to build up this network graph uh, for a JavaScript. So there's a JavaScript uh, library. I can't remember its name. I think it's viz.js, if I remember correctly, but maybe not. Uh, that allows yeah, you that's to, a popular one yeah and it, it uh, one of the one of the visualization components is, has is is a network graph so I just uh, talk to this back end the back end this is again talking to the topic maps engine the topic map engine has an, uh, a method uh, get network graph you pass in a topic identifier and it just comes back with all of the related topic and the relationships between those topics I pass that onto the net this this network graph uh, library. And there, now you've got it, and you can use it now to to navigate uh, your your topic map, basically. Yes. Okay. So to recap, mainly server side templates with sprinkles of JavaScript were needed. Correct. Correct. There's two more visualizations which I've got in place from a backend point of view that will also use the same pattern. Basically, a JavaScript uh, library, a uh, visualization library, talks to a backend endpoint uh, to to visualize. So there's two more uh, that I'm going to get in place hopefully within the next couple of weeks. One is um, for geographic data. So you would be able to set a, a geographic uh, geographic coordinates on a topic. 
you would then be able to see, you would click on somewhere in the application and it would show you the, a pin of those geographic coordinates within a Google map uh, somewhere. And also you would be able to say, okay, show me all of the, all of the topics that have a geographic coordinates, show me them in this map visualization. And then obviously it would show you all of the topics in that map. You could then click on any one of those uh, topics in the map and the application would navigate to that topic. And the final visualization would be um, a temporal navigation. So basically a timeline. There's a fantastic project uh, for this. I think they're called Knights, Knights Lab. They are a, a, I think they're a university department uh, somewhere in the US uh, and they build tools for, for, for journalists, I believe. And one of their tools is a, a net, uh, sorry, a, um, a timeline so that you can put things onto a timeline. You can navigate back and forth in that timeline and, and in contextualize what that that would enable you to do is to visualize all of your topics that you have set a, a time a timestamp on the topic it would then lay out all of these topics on the timeline you could visually uh, go back and forth in this timeline click on the topic and the application again navigates you towards to that topic so yes it's it really is that it's it's a it's a quite traditional application but it has some JavaScript for these kind of things specifically visualizations yes okay so shortly before this call, I did take a look at your GitHub repo just to take a look at like which libraries you're using. And I noticed that you're using GUnicorn as the app server. Did you compare that to other ones or like what made you pick that one? Um, I, I think I'm going to sound like a broken record. I mean, if I remember correctly, uh, I think they referenced it quite early on in the Flask documentation. They, they gave a couple of options uh, with regards to application servers, but I think their very first one was, uh, sorry, how does it, how do you pronounce it? Gunicorn? Junicorn? I've heard it like 35 different ways. Yeah. It's either Gunicorn or Gunicorn. I think both of them are commonly accepted. Okay. So, so Gunicorn then, uh, I think that was one of the first ones that, uh, in the Flask documentation is it, it's explained how, how to use this. Uh, I, I can't speak highly enough of the Flask documentation. You read it, you maybe have to reread it once or twice, but after that you do what they say, it worked. It, it worked for me. So, so obviously at some point I was thinking, I want to get this into production. So for the majority of the development of the application, I'm using the, the, the development server that, uh, that Flask makes available, but I am thinking about production. So I, I started looking at the documentation and how to connect this all up with something like Nginx. So uh, Contextualize is, is sitting behind Nginx. Uh, so Nginx, Goonicorn, the Flask application. Um, it, it was, uh, again, some very good documentation that I found online. Uh, Digital Ocean has very good documentation for specifically Flask applications of all things. Uh, and they it walk you through setting up Nginx with Gunicorn Flask application. I, I followed that uh, tutorial or that documentation. Uh, and, and that's that's more than anything uh, why I'm using uh, that library. Yes, I, I found the documentation for it. It was easy to set up. Yeah, no, it's a really good library. I use it too in all of my projects. 
definitely no complaints. It runs like a champ, super easy to configure. It, it does, yes, yes. And configuration, I mean, I think I created one separate uh, file to to for Gunicorn, and then that was it. I mean, a very small little file, and, and that was it uh, to get the application up and running and configured with Gunicorn. It, 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 it was a no-brainer. It was a no-brainer, yeah. So now maybe is a good time to talk about maybe some other components of your tech stack. You mentioned you're using Nginx. Do you happen to be using Docker as well or no? Oh, um, okay. So I, I've got some uh, I've got some help uh, with uh, Contextualize. So like I said, Contextualize, it is an open source application. I've had lots of people dropping by and giving me specifically Docker. They've been contributing uh, with, with Dockerizing uh, Contextualize. So the application, if you go to if you go to the GitHub repo, you will see that the application is Dockerized. I'm not using Docker, and that that's for one reason. Uh, so so this project it is a one man show. I'm not too familiar with Docker, so it's it's on my bucket list of technologies that I really have to jump into because it's so obvious uh, how powerful and useful and flexible Docker is. But I, I just don't have the sufficient knowledge to feel comfortable to start to, because again, like I said, I, I really wanted to build this application, focus on the features, get it out, use it for my own purposes. And I wanted to do it relatively quick. So, so Dockerize with me, not being that familiar with it, not being too comfortable with it. I, I, I basically said it will come at some point I will, I will actually deploy using Docker, but I'm not at this moment. No, I literally with Linode. So I think we will come to that as well. This application is hosted on uh, Linode or Linode. Uh, it's a, it's a very basic VPS, uh, Ubuntu LTS, 1804 LTS. I, I log in, I've set up this application manually. I set up Postgres SQL. I set up Nginx, I, I set up the firewalls. I use uh, the Let's Encrypt wizard or to, to set up the, the, the security tick, uh, certificate. Um, I did that all manually. Uh, so no, there's no Docker magic as I'm wanted to say, uh, that I sometimes say. No, I'm not using Docker in production, no. Okay, well, lots of good stuff to unwind in those last couple sentences. One being Postgres. So that's actually surprising to me because I kind of thought based on what you said before, maybe that this topic DB would have been like its own like its own database. So are you actually using Postgres then under the hood? I, I'm actually, so so topic DB, um, under the hood, it's using Postgres, uh, Postgres SQL. Um, so so topic DB, uh, it, it, topic DB in itself, broadly speaking, can be broken down into a couple of things. So you have the, the topic map models. So you have a topic, you have an association, you have an occurrence, you have metadata. These are models and there's a data class like uh, approach to that. These are these are models. These models basically are, are serialized and deserialized by the topic store. So I can go to the topic store and say, okay, get me a topic, get topic, pass in the topic ID. What the store basically does then, it goes to the database, retrieves all of the relevant information, 
uh, for a topic and then builds the actual topic object, instantiates the topic object, uh, uh, builds, uh, provides all of the appropriate information that it got from the database into that object and returns the topic object. And likewise for occurrences and associations and, and metadata. But under the hood, it's it's PostgreSQL. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, the topic DB is kind of like this abstraction layer, but for the actual persistence, it's using uh, PostgreSQL, yes. Interesting. So what library do you use to connect to that Postgres database, SQL Alchemy or something else? Um, okay, uh, no. For the actual topic DB, I'm using, uh, I think the library is called PsychoPG2. Is it PsychoPG2? Yep. Uh, which uh, I, I like a lot. It's a very straightforward uh, library to use. It, uh, it, it does what it says it will do. I've never had problems with it. Uh, my biggest problem with that library has been is is basically not that much related to the library itself, but uh, when when I made uh, uh, contextualize and topic DB when I made them open source and I put them out onto GitHub and I said, look, people, come and take a look. Obviously, some people did take a look. The biggest problem I've run in with that library is to spe specifically for people that have a Mac. Uh, on Linux, it's okay, but for people that have a Mac is to actually get that library to build because it has quite some build requirements. So you have to have your C compiler, you have to have the appropriate header files, both uh, the Python header files, the PostgreSQL header files. So there, there are some quite a lot of hard requirements to build a Psycho PG2 library. Um, and that's been one of the roadblocks in onboarding more developers into contextualize uh, people having problems with uh, Psycho PG2 and building it so that they can actually start developing and uh, developing contextualize. But the library itself, again, I, I love it. It 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 works. It's uh, it's an easy to use library. Uh, it's pretty performant. Uh, at least I'm not having, and nor have I seen any performance related problems with it. And I've and I've done some benchmarking. I, I've used there's a Jarvis tool, JMeter, I think it's called, that allows you to just uh, create a lot of requests and you can send them to an endpoint so you can set up a lot of simultaneous concurrent requests and send them to an endpoint so i've used that tool to to send it to a a, a flask endpoint uh, and then obviously behind the scenes it's talking directly to the topic db to the topic maps engine performances i'm not seeing problems with performance either so i, I like the library yes i like the library yeah yeah it's a good one at least on windows though we are a little bit lucky that we have the WSL, the Windows subsystem for Linux, which will let you run basically Ubuntu 18 or like, you know, whatever distro that you'd like. So you can get a semi-native Linux Linux experience. But I, I now I see why maybe some contributors started to set up some Docker components because Docker kind of is uh, a fix to that problem, right? It's like if everything is in Docker, then you can kind of have everyone up and running on the same environment. Exactly. That, that's exactly it. So again, you see the use and the flexibility and the power that is Docker. So yes, exactly. Yeah. So going back to your Linode setup, you mentioned that you manually configured uh, Let's Encrypt. So you're not using like their load balancer, I guess, or no? No, uh, I, I didn't manually. Uh, so uh, Let's Encrypt... Um, uh, you can install uh, for Ubuntu, you can install, uh, I, I call it a wizard. Uh, it allows you to just answer, you run it, you answer a couple of questions, you give it like information, what domain and this and that. 
and it basically does everything for you. You have to choose if you're going to be using engine, if you're using Nginx or if you're using Apache. But apart from that, it, it sets up the SSL certificate. It sets it up for you. You, you don't have to do that much. Uh, it, it creates uh, the appropriate, uh, in my case, the Nginx uh, file, or at least it modified an existing Nginx configuration file. It, it, it did everything for, for me. So I, again, with Let's Encrypt, with the tools that they have nowadays to onboard developers into using uh, certificates, it's a very straightforward process. Yeah, that sounds like you're using the CertBot library. Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah. Okay, so do you have all of this then up and running on one single server, right? I have it all. Uh, like I said, uh, you said uh, in preparation for this for this podcast, you sent through quite a lot of questions, and I, and I reviewed these questions, and I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, I've got such a simple application. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope this is not letting somebody down where people listen to me. Yes, it it's, it's really is a simple application. It's all running on one server, so the database, the agent, next flask it's all sitting on on one server yes and it's a very modest server uh, at that i mean it's uh, i think if i remember correctly linode has two major types of plans as they call them uh, one is the high memory one and one is the normal plan and the normal plan starts off with something like uh, two gigabytes of ram one core 50 gigabytes of ssd storage and then the next one is well instead of two gigabytes of ram you get four gigabytes and 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 so forth uh i i've got literally the smallest plan uh and it's a ten dollar a month plan and that's where this is this is running uh so it's the most basic it's the smallest setup you could probably imagine that's what contextualize is running on i kid you not yeah yeah i mean i don't think you're disappointing anyone to me that's like the most fantastic news ever ever and to be honest like here's a secret most of the things i run is on one server as well it's like flask and python and really honestly most web frameworks you know rails is a little bit heavy but yeah i mean you can get so much done just on one server like you can serve millions of actual real requests per month you know it, of course it depends on what you're doing of course it but does. generally speaking yeah one server you can you can do a lot i mean i think as as developers we we we, we especially if you're doing something quite fancy at work. I mean, this is definitely not how we do things at work. At, at work, it, it's a completely different, it's a completely different ball game. Uh, I mean, there, there we do have, we have Kubernetes running at work uh, and I have the appropriate people at work that have an in-depth understanding of, of setting this up and managing it and the scalability of it all. But that's not what this is. Uh, with this, it was, uh, well, it, it, it's a side project, but, Saying that, uh, I, I don't want to put out something that with uh, 20 users is going to come down because uh, either your your server can't support it or your application architecture can't support it. But I, I can see I'm, I, I've got approximately 200 users that have signed up. I, 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 I'm surprised that I've got 200 users that have signed up, but 200 users, 207 users have signed up. Uh, because the application hasn't been running too uh, too long, I can't say monthly active users, but I can say weekly active users. There's about 80 weekly active users. Um, and when I go to the Linode dashboard and I can see a breakdown of CPU usage, uh, storage, uh, all of these kind of things, I mean, 
the server's not breaking a sweat. I mean, it really is not breaking a sweat. It's 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 insignificant to the server. These these eighty plus users that are using the the website now. Obviously, that's a very small number of users, but the server is not breaking a sweat. I mean, it really, I think the CPU usage on average is 2%, 2-3%. It's something like that. Yep. It's pretty interesting too. It's like, honestly, you can probably have like a thousand weekly users and it still would be a couple of percent. I think so. And and the advantage with Linode is that it, it's very easily to, to vertically scale. So it, it's uh, you can very easily scale up to the next plan or scale down to the previous plan. Or So I could go from, if I saw that at some point, oh, I, I do actually need a bit more, a bit more uh, with, with regards to the server that this is all running on, I, I would go to the Linode dashboard and just say, okay, go to this plan or go to this plan and and there is some downtime i think involved in that but i think it would be minutes and i would be over to the next plan so so vertically scaling with linode is 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 very simple to do so so if i saw that this was uh, becoming a problem i could deal with it yes right so you mentioned that you kind of just followed which is kind of funny a digital ocean blog post on how to set this all up on linode <laughs> yeah there's there's some uh, yes some contradiction there yes but when it came to setting that up then, yeah, I, I imagine you're not using any configuration management tools, right? Like Ansible, Puppet Chef? No, none. Absolutely none. So these were this was one of the sections in your list of questions. I think to myself, I've really got very little to say when it comes to that. No, nothing. It's, it's It was literally set up manually. The application is so simple. I think uh, it hasn't required any of this. Uh, but, but isn't that, again, one of the things? The, the, the I don't know, one of the beauties of something like Flask. In terms of complexity, it can be something very simple or very complex, depending on your needs. In my case, contextualized at this point is still a rather simple application. That, that's, that's fine with Flask. I can see how it could, uh, uh, with Flask, I can extend it to become a more and more, if additional complexity is required, I can see that with uh, with Flask, that is that is entirely doable. Um, so yes, it's it's a simple application. It has none of these kind of configuration tools uh, not required up until now. Yeah, it's pretty neat. One thing that I am jealous about about you not using Docker. So I use Docker on most of my projects, mm. but I I do notice I did recently, like I don't know, six months ago or something, for some client work, I had to set up a Flask app for someone, and they just you know they were not using Docker. And what I noticed on a DigitalOcean server, like similar to the Linode one, like a very minimal one, you know, one gig of RAM or whatever, the entry level uh, server, it was so fast, so fast to reload the GUnicorn web server for a code change. Like when you push a new version of the code, GUnicorn, like literally, it completely restarted in less than one second. It probably was like 500 milliseconds. Uh, totally agree. I mean, uh, when it comes to redeploying, so. Uh... Okay, so I, I'm obviously developing this on, on Git. Uh, so when, once I've merged something to master, again, a very manual process that I have in place, It it and, and there's reasons why it's that way and why I like that. It's a very explicit way of doing things, and, and I like that. So I, I, I eventually merge whatever change, whatever feature, whatever bug fix, I merge it to master. I then literally SSH into my server, 
Uh, and, and I've written a, uh, a Python script, talking about Python, a Python script that will do a couple of things for me. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Okay, so I, I log into the server, I go to this Python script, I go to the directory where this Python script is sitting, and I, I literally run this Python script, deploy, deploy.py, uh, and it does a couple of things. Um, it, 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 it stops Nginx, it stops contextualize, it does a git pull from master, it starts contextualize, it starts Nginx, and it checks a health endpoint. And then if that health endpoint comes back saying, yes, everything is okay, it will actually report in the console, it will report okay or not okay. Uh, I think all of that, uh, I don't think all of that takes 30 seconds. I literally don't think it takes 30 seconds. I think it's something like 15 seconds to do a complete deployment of the application. Again, uh, this is a very simple application, but it's just so easy to manage, so trivial, so quick to manage that uh, there's a lot to say for it. Yes. Yeah. No, it sounds like during that workflow, which is basically, you know, how that's pretty much your deploy process, right? Going Correct. from development to production. But it sounds like a lot of that 15 seconds or whatever is probably just doing the get pull. It's not like waiting for Nginx to restart. Not at all. Not at all. Because when I was still doing this manually, I mean, it, it literally, like you said, I, I don't even think it comes to, a, I don't even think it takes a, a second. Exactly. Uh, without exaggeration, I don't think it takes a second. Right. So you mentioned, you know, Nginx is sitting in front of this. Do you then have Nginx also handling serving your static files, like images and CSS, things Correct. like that? Yes, yes. It, uh, and all it, of that was in that guide that you filed? It's all of that in the guide. If you want after the show, I can send you the link to the guide. I mean, it is a very, very good walkthrough of setting this all up uh, with, uh, with uh, Nginx, Ubuntu, um, Gunicorn, Flask, um, let's encrypt. Uh, there's, I think it's a combination of two or three of their tutorials, and and it walks you through all of this. So yes, the static files are also being served by uh, Nginx. Okay, so then you're also not using. Well, I know the answer already. Like probably not using a CDN to serve those images and static files. Not yet. No, I'm not. So one component of your deploy process, you know, you mentioned you basically pull things down from GitHub to get it onto the production machine. But how do you deal with secrets? So API keys, email credentials, et cetera. Okay, so I have, uh, so yeah, um, I, I've, I've been a bit back and forth on this. Uh, and at some point I was thinking, okay, I'll set, I'll, I'll, uh, the secrets will be environmental, uh, environment uh, variables. I think that's the term for them. Um, but what I've landed on is a settings.ini file. And that settings.ini file is obviously not sitting in, in a version control system. So when you go to the, the project in, on GitHub, there isn't a, a sample settings.ini file. But in my case, I have a settings.ini file. That settings.ini file is not sitting, is, has not been committed, obviously, to a version control system. And when the application starts in the in the Flask init.py uh, um, uh, file, it, it obviously reads in the settings.ini file and then populates all of the appropriate secrets and, and whatnot, API keys and whatnot, Postgres uh, credentials, all of those are sitting in a settings.ini file. I'm not absolutely convinced that that is the most secure way of doing things. I, I actually don't know. For me, currently, it's the approach I have. Right. But how does that file then get onto the server itself? Do you just SCP it over? Um, I, I've actually, so I SSH into my server and, and I've just actually used a text editor to create that file. 
Okay, so yeah. basically like the manual way of SCPing a file. So SCPing a file is like securely transferring it from one machine to another? Correct. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get too deep in the woods on how to deal with secrets because there is so many ways, but I, I have had a lot of luck using environment variables. Yeah, and I've been thinking of using the environment variables because again, I'm, I'm not quite sure if what I'm doing with a settings.uni file, if that is, I don't know how secure that is, but you would have to get access to the to the server and then, yeah. Right. Well, in that, in that case, like between that any file or an environment file or even variables, then the security is the same. It's like at the end of the day, the, the data is sitting there on disk. Correct. I think so. So I, 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 this is up for discussion. I don't know exactly if I'm doing it the right way or if I'm not doing it the right way. It seems to be okay-ish. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that makes me cringe a little is having to go into the, the server and open up the editor to make the edit. I know, and again, that is uh, that is me just being potentially a bit lax on this. Uh, not uh, probably something that could be improved. Yes, I, I don't disagree. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, on the flip side, right? It's like this isn't something you're changing seventeen times a day, right? Those values are very, very rarely changing. I bet they don't. That's it. They don't change. I set them up the first time I, I, I installed the application, and since then they they've never changed again. So I I don't actually ever change that that I don't change that file. It's never changed since I set it up originally. Yep. So speaking of secret files, uh, secret values like email credentials, we didn't really get a chance to talk about that yet. Uh, which email service do you use to send emails out? Because I imagine you have like a password reset, perhaps. Uh, I do. I'm, I, okay, so there's a couple of things here. I, I'm using uh, a Flask library called a Flask Security. Uh, and there's a bit of a story to, to that as well. Um, so when I was originally, when I started developing this application, it must have been at the beginning of 2019, I, I started the development of the application. And, and quite quickly, things like logging in and logging out and all of these kind of things, you quite that's probably one of the first things you, you need to get uh, get in place for an application. Uh, so I started looking around. Uh, I was still somewhat new in the Flask uh, ecosystem, but I quite quickly stumbled across a library called um, uh, Flask Security. Uh, went through it. Uh, the documentation looked good. Uh, the, uh, the examples that they gave looked good. I, I, I obviously then uh, decided to to use the the Flask library, and I've never had problems with that Flask library. But at some point, this Flask library, I, I realized that this Flask library uh, called Flask Security was basically had been abandoned, and and that puts you into a kind of like a pretty bad situation because this is fundamental to your application. So you have to refactor and replace with another library. It, it's 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 going to probably be a bit messy. You could be lucky, but you could be unlucky as well. Luckily, with Flask uh, Securities, uh, some other developers uh, who said, look, this is a, a very critical library for the Flask uh, ecosystem. Uh, we need to try to revive it, get it going again. I think they tried with the original maintainer. They didn't have too much luck there. They created then, they forked, I think with permission, uh, somewhat uh, with some kind of agreement with the original maintainer. They forked a Flask Security and they created a library called Flask Security 2. Uh, at 2 as in T-O-O, -O, not the number 2. Um, so Flask Security 2. 
And that was a drop-in replacement for Flask Security. The API was maintained, everything was maintained. The only thing was that they took it then from that point onwards, they fixed all of the bugs and they started extending it with new features. So I was lucky that uh, that Flask Security 2 uh, came into place quite soon after I had started developing the application and I could just seamlessly switch over to that library. So this library has quite a lot of functionality. It, it, it's, it's obviously authentication. Uh, it provides uh, some default templates for logging in, logging out. So you get templates that you can override. You can provide your own version of those templates uh, for, for logging in, logging out, resetting password. Um, you can configure it to to actually track uh, signups, log logging in. You can track when a person logged in, what IP address they logged in from. All of these things, all of this functionality, you get out of the box uh, for uh, with this library. And obviously, also things like resetting passwords or sending a sign up uh, email. This library takes care of that. So the only thing you have to do then is configure the library or the Flask application to be talking to your to your uh, mail server. And, and that's what I've done. I've just configured this library to be talking to my, my mail server. Okay. So which mail server is that, by the way? Um, okay. So like I said, uh, before I came to Norway, I lived for, for a long, long time in Spain. And I started using a, um, a company. I'm not sure if this was exactly your question, uh, Nick, but I started using a Spanish company, uh, 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 internet provider, and they provide uh, all of the appropriate uh, services like a like an email service. Uh, so you you I uh, register the domain with with them. I can then also just tick on a couple of boxes in this admin panel that I have with them, and I can have an email service uh, set up for me uh, for that domain. So uh, to tell you the truth, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what email service it is. I, I get it out of the box by using this this company's uh, uh, yeah services, specifically domain registration. And then when I register a domain, I could just say, I need this service, I need this service, and I need this service. And one of the services that I selected was an email service. Then you get all of the appropriate configuration details to connect to that email service. And that's what I'm using. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like they are the service that sends the email. So they give you the SMTP credentials or whatever you need. It, correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now on the topic maybe of other SaaS tools you might or may not be using, what about things like error reporting and logging and metrics? Okay. So logging, I'm using actually Flask's logging. Uh, again, going through, gone through the documentation, they, they explain how to set up logging. So I'm using Flask logging. Uh, it, it writes to a database. Uh, so periodically I, I check that database to see what has been logged there. It is Flask logging though. Um, I, I'm not really using any other SaaS tools uh, in that respect. Uh, no, very little, if anything. Uh, I think I went through, like I said, you sent uh, a list of questions and I was looking at this section and, and I was thinking to myself, I've got very little to say when it comes to this part. I'm not using any real SaaS tools uh, for, for these kind of things. Yeah, that's fine. But for things like getting error reports, then do you just kind of just 
look through your logs periodically? Like, how does that work? Yes, uh, approximately, so again, all very manual. Uh, once once a day, I will, I will log in and take a look at the Nginx uh, error logs and the Nginx access logs. And if I see anything there that warrants me taking a deeper look, then, then I'll do that. Yes, so I, I just look at those logs. Yes, you can set up Nginx and Flask to, to really do some quite extensive logging of uh, application errors uh, via Nginx. So I, I kind of hate giving like unsolicited advice, but do you want a little bit of, of uh, insight on the error reporting? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Give me advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So with Flask, there is about, I don't, I don't think it's in their documentation, but there is probably 15 or 10 lines of code that you can drop into your init file or app.py file or whatever. And you can basically hook things up so that if you get any type of error, like any 500 error, then you can get automatically emailed when that error happens. So it's like, instead of you having to pull the server every day for logs, you can now just get notified if an error happens. Oh, that, that would be fantastic. I, I need to look into this. Now, the only caveat with that is that, you know, it's going to send out this email on, on any error. So if you have a very, very high traffic site with like, you know, tens of thousands of people and you happen to post, you know, something with a bug and now there's like 700 errors happening within like 10 minutes, then you're going to get 700 emails, which would be kind of annoying. I, I hope to have that problem that I'm, I've got so many users that uh, if there is a bug, I'm getting a lot of emails. So I, right. I, th I think I could live with that at least for now. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. a good problem to yeah, have. Yeah, it is. It is. So speaking of bugs and hopefully avoiding bugs, do you have a test suite that you run before you deploy things to production? I, I don't so much for the Flask side of things. For the topic map engine, yes, I have I have uh, unit tests uh, that, that are run every single time I, I, I make a commit. I run the unit tests as, as well. So for the actual topic maps engine, yes. Uh, for the actual Flask side of things, no, not really. No. If you've got some advice there as well, I'm listening. <laughs> no, other than like maybe go for a writing test at some point in the future. They'll just, you know, it just makes it easier. Like, I don't know, I sleep better at night. And the real value is like, if I change something in file A, are things going to break in file C? Like, you don't know unless you have some type of test suite up, unless you manually do like a test every single change. But now it's like suddenly you're wasting a lot of human effort. Absolutely. Yes, it, it makes a lot of sense. At some point, you would, I would need to get that in place. Yes. Yep. So I guess speaking of bugs and disasters and unexpected events and things like that, do you have any plans for that? Like, how do you back up your data? Okay, uh, Linode to the rescue. I mean, with Linode, it, it is very easy on a uh, on a node by node basis to to set up uh, to set up backup. So um, let me see if I can find this information because I actually yes. So uh, you can enable uh, backups for the VPS, and then automatically three backup slots are executed and rotated automatically. So you would get a daily backup, a two to seven day old backup and an eight to 14 day old backup. For the plan that I have, and I mean, again, it's a no brainer and I've obviously enabled it. The, uh, the price to enable backups for my plan is two, two and a half dollars. So it's, it's a no brainer. So backups are made of the entire disk or disks. Uh, the backup would include all of the files on the disk at the moment the backup is made, including user-generated files. So up until now, I've never had to restore a backup, but restoring a backup would create a new configuration profile and a new set of disks on your Linode. So then you could just 
actually mount those disks, go to whichever files you need to restore and copy them over if you needed to. So, so yes, at, at least backups are in place and, and I'm doing that with uh, Linode, yes. Nice. Yeah, I've never used them before, but it's good to hear that they have some automated way to deal with that. Uh, oh, Linode, I, I, I cannot speak highly enough of them. First of all, I mean, the, the, the price quality ratio, I mean, it, it's excellent. I, I, I know DigitalOcean and I presume DigitalOcean has something similar and other, other cloud-like VPSs probably have uh, something similar. But uh, Linode, one, the admin interface is very easy to use. You can seamlessly um, uh, scale vertically up and down uh, without any problems. You can connect, um, so you can get uh, block storage, you can get uh, object storage connected to your Linode. You can do these backups. And I mean, it, it's just going to a backend uh, interface, to an admin interface and, and clicking around a bit. They inform you how much that will in increase your monthly your monthly uh, fee and, and off you go. I mean, it is literally almost that simple. So I, I cannot speak highly enough of Linode. Yes, I, I really like them, really, really like them. Yeah, so while I don't use them, I, I'm very appreciative that they do exist because mm. whatever, you know, I'm not going to be like, oh, use DigitalOcean instead, but I just happen to use DO because I've been using them for a couple of years. And, and, and that's that's my case with Linode as well. So I, I'm imagining that this is quite standard way of uh, these kind of services uh, working, but but my experience with Linode is yeah, it's 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 been a very good one. I, I like I like using them. Yeah, so it's very cool that both of us have just been using different services for a couple of years and they're both really, really, really good. Really good. The really cool thing about it is like, well, that creates some competition. So we get to win in the end because we get a little bit lower prices, better computer specs. Exactly. So speaking of uh, Linode, Linode, however you want to say it, do they have anything set up for like alarms? Like if your you know, CPU load goes above 80% for five minutes, then they can send you an email? Yeah, exa exactly that. You can you can configure it at, uh, so at different levels, uh, and then they've got a couple of default levels if CPU usage uh, goes beyond, I think, I think the default now is currently 10%. If it goes beyond that, you would get an automated email sent. Or if your disk <clears throat> usage is too high, or if the, some kind of metric is is, uh, is is significant, you will get an email sent to you. Yes. Nice. So do you have any other even external monitoring in place, like just checking the public website to make sure it's up and then you get notified if it's down? No, I actually, I haven't yet. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm feeling quite bad about this, but uh, the the project is it is still in terms of it being in production. Uh, it, it's it's a month, a month and a half in production. Uh, I I need to get around to doing this, but I haven't done it yet. Yeah, so a cool one for that. And they're not a sponsor. I just happen to use them. Good product. UptimeRobot.com. So they are free up to, I think you can monitor 20 sites or something like that, but it's very painless to set up. You put in the URL that you want. It's going to ping it every five minutes, make sure that it returns a status code of 200. If it doesn't, then it just emails you that, hey, by the way, your site's down. Uh, a no-brainer to use then. Yeah, it's like five-minute setup, totally worth it. So we're getting near the end of the show here, and this is my favorite question ever. So what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this project? It depends what you want out of. Uh, so, so for me, this this is a side project, and for for many developers, when they are building a side project, that is a, obviously a fantastic opportunity to learn uh, new technologies and play around with all of those things that you you can't do at work. And and to a degree, that was for me, it, it was the same. 
I, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to develop this with Python because I really wanted to be productive. I know that I'm productive with Python. Then it was, okay, which web framework? Uh, so for me, Flask was something new, but it's still relatively traditional. I mean, uh, I, I, I really made the decision to not go down that route of setting this up uh, as an API React front-end React.js or Vue.js kind of like application talking to an API backend. I, I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something that would allow me to get something up and running very quickly. So uh, Flask uh, allowed me to do that. So when it comes to tips and what I've learned, well, I've, I've learned Flask and I think it's a, it's a very flexible framework uh, that allows you to go from very simple applications, which probably contextualized still is, to uh, I've seen uh, quite complex applications built with, with Flask. But uh, so, so Flask for sure is something that, that I've learned. I, I think it's also important. The next thing I, I mentioned it before, uh, make, sure that you really check out the libraries that you are going to be using because um, I had this problem. I won't say it was a problem, but it was becoming a bit of a problem that I adopted. I decided on a library, Flask Security, and that library, it, it, it had basically died. That project had basically died. So then you are quite quickly in a situation of building something and you have a critical component that is not being maintained anymore. So then you have to you have to migrate, you have to move away, you have to find something else, you have to refactor your application. So make sure you choose libraries that, uh, that are going to be around, uh, that are actively maintained, have good documentation. Uh, uh, you can go to lots of places to find answers, to get support. Uh, I, I think that's something that really, really uh, you should consider. When it comes to security and, and by chance Flask security, it is a security uh, library or security related library. I mean, security is, is a tricky thing. Um, and, and there's lots of edge cases when it comes to security. So don't try to roll your own security. I mean, choose a good library, follow their documentation, implement it as uh, how they are recommending you to, to implement things. Uh, because security is tricky. Security, like I said, lots of edge cases. Use the right library, do it how they recommend, uh, and, and then take it from there. Yeah. Choose your libraries carefully. Your dependencies, maybe, is a better word. Choose them carefully. I, I think that's important. Yeah, that's a very good tip. So I don't, I don't remember exactly what was in the requirements.txt file, but I remember the shape of the file was very small. Like you only had maybe 10 dependencies in there, maybe? Uh, yes. I don't have the file in front of me now, but I think it's 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 a very small requirements file. I think uh, Goonicorn is obviously one um slugify a library to slugify to take these words and turn them into uh, something that is suitable for a url that's another um uh, flask security 2 i think uh S sql sorry how do you pronounce it sql alchemy uh, uh you it, mean psychopg yeah psychopg and then there's another one there's a flask sql Oh, yeah, yeah, that's SQL Alchemy. Okay. So, sorry, yes. Yeah, uh, so I think there's like seven, eight, maybe nine um, dependencies that I, or direct dependencies that, that I have. Yes, it's it's very small. It, it's very small. And then obviously I've got two of my own dependencies. I have TopicDB as a dependency. Oh, and then TopicDB has another one of my own dependencies, uh, typed tree. That's another, that's another um, 
library of mine, open source library that uh, TopicDB depends on. But yes, very few direct dependencies. Correct. Yes, it's it's a small application. No, well, I mean, I can give you some stats on that. I think I compiled some stats on the application itself in terms of, okay, so contextualize is, is a combination of two major components, uh, the front end, the Flask web application, and then the back end, the Topic Maps engine. Contextualize has 21 Python files. Uh, uh, there's obviously lots of templates. There's lots of there's there's some CSS. There's some JavaScript. But in terms of Python files, there's 21 Python files in the application. 21. Huh? Very very small application. I think it's about 4,200 lines of code. Uh, contextualized the front end application, and then the back end, the Topic Map engine. It has 27 Python files with a total of 3,000 lines of code, 3,004 lines of code. And then there's one more dependency, type tree. So type tree is what takes a graph and turns it into a tree. And it has uh, type-related information about the nodes and the edges uh, uh, as well. That's another library, six Python files with 240 lines of code. So in total, if I look at the direct dependencies of contextualize, there's 7,448 lines of code. And and it packs a lot. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I mean, uh, that's that's not something that you can point to me and say, well, that's your merit, Brett. Well, well maybe it is, but it's Python's merit. I mean, in 7,400 lines of code, it there's, there's a lot of functionality there. I think if I, because I, I used to do a lot of Java development, I used to do a lot of C-sharp development, I think it would be double. It would be double to build something like contextualized with uh, Java, with a Spring Boot or, or, or some kind of C-sharp. Uh, I won't say too much about C-sharp. It's been too much time to really comment on C-sharp. But with Java, up until quite recently, I was still developing with Java. I think it would be double, at least double the amount of lines of code. So, so that's Python. I mean, there's a lot in 7,400 lines of code, a lot of functionality. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, just to give like a second example, and I don't want to pitch my own course on the podcast, but I do have a Flask course and we build a SaaS app in that course. And like there is about 4,500 lines of code code without tests. And that's like payments and invoicing and settings. Like it's a whole entire app. So yeah, you can definitely build a lot with Python. And that's the beauty of Python. It's it's such a clear, concise language, such a language. It's a language that just gets to the point. Or sometimes I like to say it just gets out of the way. And again, it was a huge factor in, in, in the decision, what language are you going to use? Well, of course it's going to be Python because it allows me to focus on what I want to focus on, which is the features of the application. I, I, yeah, that's Python. Packs a lot. Uh, you get a lot of bang for your bucks, as they say. Yep. Very well put. So Brett, Thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks, Nick. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, at work, they say, man, Brett, you can talk. Yes, I can talk. So I, I hope I, I didn't talk too much, although obviously that's the point of a podcast, but I hope you could still get some, some questions in there. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks a lot. Great opportunity. And I enjoy listening to your podcast. That That's ultimately how I got around to doing this. I, I found your podcast and I was like, okay, I, I walk home from work every day. Uh, and and I, I just put my podcasts on and I, and I love listening to podcasts. And this is one of them. So thanks a lot. Really, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that. And your train of thought is like unmatched, unrivaled. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> thanks a lot. 
So uh, before we wrap this up, though, do you want to share any links maybe to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, um, let me see. Uh, I'm in a lot of places, or at least I think you can find me almost all over. I mean, you can go to my profile on, on GitHub. So you would go to github.com forward slash Brett Krumkamp. Uh, you can go to contextualize.dev to find the actual application. And there are links to my GitHub profile and also to my personal site. My personal website is brettkrumkamp.com. And then you can also find me on Twitter. And that is obviously twitter.com forward slash brettkrumkamp or my Twitter handle, which is just brettkrumkamp. So uh, I'm, I'm all over the place. Easy to find, I think. Cool. Sounds good. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. And I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.